Welcome to the E Street Cafe podcast, the cool, friendly place for great music chat. Hi, everybody. This is Jeff Matthews, and welcome to yet another episode of the E Street Cafe podcast. I don't know where you are today, but where I am, it is absolutely boiling hot. I've got iced water. Rosalita is absolutely looking after us again. I think uh, I might need the toilet halfway through this podcast, Dan. Um, it's very hot, and I'm drinking a lot. How about you? How are you doing, Dan? Yeah, um, uh, melting in the heat likewise, Jeff, but otherwise, living the dream. Yeah, I think there's a Springsteen lyric there somewhere, isn't there? <laughs> melting yeah. on the streets, yeah. <laughs> um, so without further ado, let me introduce today's guest. Uh, we have Craig Statham with us, and he's the author of Springsteen, Satan in the City. Uh, Craig was born in Edinburgh and educated at Dalkeith High School and the University of St. Andrews, where he studied history. He also has a postgraduate diploma in Museum and Gallery Studies. He's currently a councillor of Midlothian Council and the local history officer for East Lothian Council too. Craig may have only been the only Scot so far to have published a Springsteen book, unless we know otherwise. And so, as the only UK Springsteen fan podcast, this feels like this is the natural place to promote his work. So as I say, it's Craig, Craig Statham, Springsteen, Satan the City. Craig, welcome to the podcast. Hi there. Hi, how are you doing today? Is it hot up there as well? It's boiling. It's, it's, it's so warm up here, or it was during the day, so yeah. But I told you earlier on, I, I went out for a run, so, you know, He's us mad. Scots were pretty hardy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, apparently uh, in Scotland, there's just two special days a year, isn't it? There's, it's Christmas Day and summer. <laughs> yep. So you got one of those special days today. <laughs> yep. Definitely. So I think without further ado, let, let me just um, first of all uh, thank you for sending uh, an advanced copy of the updated book. Um, we know this came out in 2013, and you've gone back, revisited it, and updated it quite extensively. But I must admit, I've never seen such a thoroughly researched music book in all my life. I think the amount of detail that you've gone into, Craig, is astounding. Yeah, thanks. I, I mean, that was the intention. And I, I was actually a researcher. I mean, I, I still am, I suppose, but I, I was a professional researcher. So I kind of, that those skills were kind of used when I was writing the book. Yeah. And when, and when I was going through it, I was thinking, there's so many things I can pull out here and ask you questions of, but we just haven't got the time. And, and I, I'm going to say, obviously, I'm going to urge everybody just to kind of lock into this podcast, get familiar with the theme of the book, and we probably will skim less than 1% of uh, the content of the book, but go out there and buy it. So obviously at the end, uh, what I'd like to do, Craig, is just tell everybody where they can actually get hold of the book. Um, but the one thing that I liked is um, I always get told off by my wife when I get a new book, I go straight to the pictures first. I'm like a kid. I, I go to the pictures first. And then I work back through the text. And I must admit, there's a lot of pictures in there I've not seen before. And I love the one from 1971 of Bruce carrying an amp uh, when he's playing at a small university, I think. And I, I've never seen that one before. How did you come across that? That that was um, that was an interesting set, and it's available online, actually. The whole set is available. It's uh, the first Bruce Springsteen band show. Right. Was, they, were, they were photographed by a chap called Tom Cron, who was mm. in the, the support band. And there's unfortunately there's no shots of the Bruce Springsteen band on stage, but there's loads of shots of them. There's there's a shot I think is Steve Van Zant. Oh yeah, I've got we've got it up on the screen there. Um, it's a shot at Steve Van Zant carrying some some kind of low alcohol beers around, and Bruce carrying <laughs> pianos onto the stage, and Jeannie Clark's dad tuning the piano, and and just just an amazing set of photographs that are available online. And I think just to put the, the book in context right from the, the get-go, this is 1949 to 1974. You know, so if you're looking for a modern-day history or, or, or resume of what Bruce has done since Born to Run, you're not going to get it from this book. But this absolutely does drill down in fine detail from birth, school days, growing up, picking up the guitar, and the troubles he had certainly for the first couple of years with Columbia and the challenges he faced. So 
I think it's definitely something different. I know that if you look at the books that are out there, um, he he touches in his autobiography, doesn't he, about some of the challenges in 73, 74. Other books skim over it, but this really does drill down. And it is is a very deep dive into the early years as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I that that's what I was aiming for. That I mean, that was my ultimate goal was to to really provide a full history of those those years, especially from kind of about sixty four, sixty five, right through to about seventy four, seventy five. And I I kind of I thought there's three ways I can do this. I can go. And I can get the big interviews, the Mike Appels, the Tinker Wests. That's the big interviews. If I do that, all I'm going to be doing is repeating what's already been written before. Yeah. So I've got to create another set of interviews, which is what I think are big interviews, but people that haven't been interviewed to a great extent. So people like Sam McKeith and Albie Talone. Um, mm. Just try to think of another couple of couple of guys there. Um, Oh, Jay Gibson, for example, from the Rogues and Bob Spitz, who worked with Mike wow. Appel. Those guys, those were big. I saw them as big interviews, but people that had never been interviewed really to a great extent before. Yeah. And the, But the most important group, I think, for me were the those that were on the periphery. Those that were maybe, they maybe watched the Castillos or Earth or the Bruce Springsteen band. They maybe were a band that was on stage with them. They were maybe in the bands. They were maybe in the Zoom chorus or or you know, people who were on stage with them, just people who were basically on the periphery. And my feeling was that if I got maybe 20 of those interviews, it would be enough to create one big interview. And I was yeah. completely I was completely wrong. You know, some <laughs> of those interviews in their own right were enough to create yeah. almost a, a quarter of a chapter. Some of them were so huge. So... Uh, Unbelievable. You know, people that had never been interviewed before. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Rosie's here. Um, Rosalita um, is, um, she's got a smile on her face today. And I, do you know what? We're, we're, what, 15, 16 episodes in now. And I, I think she'd be speaking again very soon, but she's definitely looking a bit more socially confident today. I think she's had a, she has, she's had a good day. She's put thumbs up to me. Um, so she's asking me what would you like to uh, eat and drink tonight, Craig? Uh, I know it's hot in Scotland today, so... Do you want a cold drink to cool you down, or um, you no, tell me what you want? I always like a cup of tea, um, cup, cup of, of tea, tea yeah. with a little bit of milk, and that's that. That's all. And yeah. to eat as a Scot, I feel obliged to take uh, porridge, and um, I'll have it with a little bit of cinnamon, and a little bit of syrup, and that will just do me fine. Well, I tell you what, that's probably the second most challenging order we've had. I think um, when we <laughs> had Mark Ribbler on, he asked for a coconut wrap, a vegetarian coconut wrap. So um, she's looking a bit perplexed and <laughs> no, no, it's okay. She's she's found all the ingredients. It's fine. It's okay. Excellent. I'll be with you shortly anyway. So I think, I think we ask this to every single person that comes on, Craig, but... Um, Tell us how it all started for you and Bruce. What, where, did, where did the journey begin? Um, I came on, I, I mean, I always think of it as coming on late, but I didn't really because I came on when I was kind of about 15 or 16 in the mid-80s with Born in the mm. USA. Mm. And I suppose, I, I don't know, if you, have you seen the film Blinded by the Light? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, you've seen, you know, that moment when I heard Springsteen, um, you know, especially when I heard, not so much Dance in the Dark, because that was the first song I heard, but more Born in the USA and I'm on Fire. When I heard those, mm. it was just like blew my mind. And it was like that scene when he's standing in front of the garages and, and blinded by the light and the lyrics are coming up on the garages. That was what it was like for me. Uh, I, yeah. Seriously, I mean, it just, my in that moment, hearing those two songs, my life was never the same again. And presumably you saw him on that tour, did you? I didn't, um, and I'm not quite sure why, but I was I was really quite young at that time. I mean, I suppose 14, 15 maybe. Yeah. Um, so it was Tunnel of Love was the first tour that I saw him on. Yeah, yeah. And did you take him more than one show? I didn't at that time. Um, limited funds, I suppose, at that at that yeah. point in my life. So, yeah, yeah. Just I just saw him, I think it was at Aston Villa. The Aston okay, Villa okay. Yeah, yeah, good, yeah. good. I think everybody who, you know, when we ask the question, how did you get, first get into Springsteen? There always is that eureka moment, isn't it? I think the one that I talk about and some of our friends talk about is is seeing Rosalita on the old grey whistle test. 
um, that was the spark for a lot of people. But everybody has their own individual spark. Um, Dan's is hearing his friend play Candy's Room on on his guitar in the university room for the first time, and then going back and discovering all the music. So it it, it everybody has their own spark. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's good to hear that, and, and I've not not heard that one before. So, but again, it, it's it's reflective of our age as well. I, I guess that me and Dan are half a vintage or generation ahead of you. <laughs> By the way, he's nodding a bit too readily here, as though he knows we're a lot older. <laughs> yeah. But, um, what, what? Sorry. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say it just went on from there. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, at that time there weren't many albums, so it was easy to get the right. albums. And then it was going to record fairs and buying live shows and buying bootlegs. And I, and, you know, until about 1998, I had more bootlegs than, than release songs, you know. So, mm. um, mm. I think we all did it, you know, and there yeah. wasn't much out there. So we were, we were obsessive about going to record fairs. Yeah, and you know, looking for the outtakes, looking for the live cassette tapes. I think it was when I started out. I know we used to get. There was a guy up in Sunderland called Greg Turnbull who used to supply all my early cassettes. And, and uh, you, all of a sudden, you you learn a different dimension. You know, you fall in love with with, with an album, whether it's Born in the USA or The River or Darkness. And then after that, you want you want more, don't you? You don't want to wait two three years for the next album. You you want the outtakes. You want the bootlegs. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, absolutely. So I think you've half answered this next question already, Craig. But my question was: there's a great focus on the early years, and then obviously you stop at seventy four, stroke seventy five, because you do talk about the Born to Run recording sessions at nine one four. But wh- why why stop pre Born to Run? Is that because it's so well documented? I think so. I think in the initial book it stops slightly earlier, and I take it I take it forward a little bit this time. Um, I I basically wanted to get to the point where he really, I suppose, went from being a cult artist to to being a bigger artist that was was capable of filling decent size um, venues, and, and that's what I did. You know, and I think once you go past that point as well, I think there's always you've always got to, you know, that you're not going to get the same number of interviews. The people back then, there's no disclosure agreements, non-disclosure agreements. You know, and everybody can speak to you, and that's what makes the research of that early period quite simple. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, if you talk to the people that we've certainly spoken to so far, you know, I, I'm I'm thinking about 1974-73 and the two people that stand out. I was talking to Dan earlier on about this. Is Dick Wingate was working in a radio station in 1973 when he did that infamous tour around the radio stations. You make reference to it in the book. I think you spoke to Dick and got the same story that we did. And also you make reference in the book as well about the 1974, uh, the first time he went outside of the Northeast effectively and went down to Texas. So, you know, we spoke to Nikki Germain about the photo shoot at Liberty Hall. And it's great going back that far because, you know, from August 75 onwards, as you say, everything is so well documented. Pre-born to run, it's so refreshing to hear those early stories and the book pulls out those stories and the amount of research you've put into it is unbelievable. So I do urge everybody to pick up the book and, you know, even the family tree information at the back, you know, the amount of research has gone into that, into the genealogy uh, charts is amazing. Yeah, I mean, I knew when I was writing the book that that there, there were gaps in the histories that were already there. Um, and, and in some cases, that there, there really wasn't any history at all. You know, the Rogues is a perfect example of that. You know, yeah. a, a band that went on for, what, two, three months, played mm. several gigs, and there was nothing written about it at all. You know, we knew the name of the band, and that was that was pretty much it, and maybe a couple of names from the band, but that was it. Um, and there were gaps there as well. Um, you know, we, they talked about the Earth, but there was virtually nothing written about Earth. You know, a couple of lines in most books. Um, the Brown University interview, which for me is a kind of, we were talk, you were talking about hinges last week, but I think the Brown University uh, interview is, is a hinge in Springsteen's early career. Mm. And it was never mentioned as more than just this interview that he did at Brown University and, and a student then complaining to his father who was high up in Columbia. I tracked everybody down um, because that's my obsessive nature and got the full story. So, yeah. you know, that was, yeah. that was basically the, the thought yeah. behind that. Cool, cool. And I think later on I do want to talk about uh, 73, 74, and there's a couple of excerpts from the book that I've picked out, certainly one that for me 
talks a lot about the challenges he faced at Columbia, how tough those early years were, how there was really a split in opinion from the executives in terms of do we stick with him? You know, is it stick or twist effectively? So, yeah. You're listening to the E Street Cafe podcast. Come on in, because we're open all night. Yeah, Craig, I mean, as you were saying, you know, obviously uh, you've given yourself a, a challenging task trying to get information uh, from and on people from, you know, such an early era. I mean, we're talking, you know, going back, you have to go back a, a generation or two in some cases. So how did you actually decide you were going to start? What was your sort of um, sort of launch person, the first person that you got hold of, uh, which led, led to, you know, um, I imagine that sort of a snowball effect, hopefully? Yeah, that, I mean, yeah, it's a good question because there, there absolutely was one person who, who got it all kind of snowballing. And I, I was doing work for Bruce Base at the time. And I, I still do a little bit of work for them, but um, I was doing work and it was mostly the work I was doing with Albie Talone for those early years. And we came across a character called Frank Craig, or Flash Craig, who was in, uh, who, who, filled in for Bob Alfano on Earth. And I became a little bit obsessed with Flash Craig. I wanted to fill in this information. And I got, I bought a subscription to one of those Ameri digitized American newspaper sites. And I figured out who Frank uh, Flash Craig was. It was this chap called Frank Craig. So I tracked him down and I kind of got his history of, of the whole thing. Uh, and that was just, that set me off. And I, I just, I went to the next person that I couldn't find out information about. And then the next person, the next person, I started to build up a story. And then, you know, there were, a, there were a couple that were incredibly hard for me to track down. One of them was Jay Gibson and the Rogues. And I, it took me about six months of solid research to track him down online. And the other person was John Graham from Earth. Uh, it, took, it took me probably about six months to track him down as well. Got them both eventually. And I knew at that point when I got those two, because without those stories, I didn't feel that I could write the book. I had to get the rogues and probably Earth as well. And once I had tracked those two characters down, it was it was not a problem. Interesting. You, you should mention um, uh, Frank Craig. And uh, so I'll, I'll jump jump ahead a little bit because I've made a note about this. So I was going to ask you anyway. Because um, the name, uh, I think, ra rang a bell because just to tell you my own little story, if it's the same guy, I, w I was at the Stone Pony back in 1982 for my first sort of proper visit, sort of adult visit to, to the shore, and um, just checking out the um, cats on a smooth surface on a, on a, on a weekend. Um, nobody thought Bruce was going to be there. But um, so I go to, I'm, I'm in the Stone Pony with a couple of friends, and um, somebody overhears a couple of, of British accents. I was there with a friend, friend from, from Scotland. And um, uh, comes up and just starts talking, and he introduced himself as Flash. Uh, no other introduction, so, but um, seemed friendly, and I was just interested to hear, hear the people from, from the UK. So um, had a, a friendly chat, and then you know we just sort of carried on. We didn't realize at that point that Bruce was, was there. Everyone thought he was away at the West Coast recording what would later become Born in the USA. But um, as far as everyone was concerned, his, his sort of summer of club hopping had, had finished. So my local guide told me, but then Bruce was suddenly spotted in the bar, and you know, the word spreads around around the bar, and it's like Bruce is here, Bruce is here, and so this guy uh, Flash comes over to me and says, um, "Do you want to meet Bruce?" And I said, "Well, well of course," but uh, I never for a second thought that you know, this might actually happen. Um, but um, you know, he, he he sort of gives me a nod or whatever, and wanders off into the crowd, and I kind of just talking to my friends, thinking, wow, Bruce is here. Maybe he'll do an encore or something. And then Flash comes back just a few minutes later and says, Bruce will talk to you now. And it's like, what? <laughs> it's like, it's like he's sort of acting as his uh, the sort of uh, this agent for Bruce. So sort of obviously kind of in a kind of dream, I sort of follow him over. And there's Bruce on a, on a, on a corner table uh, who seemed to be, enjoying himself tremendously with a lot of cocktails and, and uh, um, a lot of, lot of folks around him. Didn't look at all ready to talk to some English guy. <laughs> so I don't know if I had actually been introduced. But, you know, then Flash interrupts him and just says, Boss, 
this English guy wants to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) Right under the table, please. But what could I do? I mean, it had been said. So I just, you know, feeling very sheepish, stuck out my hand and say hi. I said, oh, I know you're you're from England. And because he's had, luckily, he's had a couple of drinks and was quite happy to talk. And um, he seemed very amused. He thought it was hilarious that anybody would come all that way just, just to see him back in those days. Um, I managed to get a couple of questions in. I felt really awkward, obviously, because he was you know, surrounded by, by others. And um, so I asked him about whether, whether uh, Clarence was going to be um, coming over to the UK, because we, we knew that um, he was looking at uh, some solo work. And um, he said, um, oh, I, I, he, said he, I, he didn't think that Clarence was coming, but uh, he's fairly sure that Steve was coming. And lo and behold, you know, I get back a couple of weeks later, and one of the first things I learn is that the Disciples of Soul going to have their first show at the Marquee literally days later. So that was um, this guy that I had never heard of uh, again since until I read your book. And then I thought, Frank Flash Craig. And surely that's got to be the same guy. I, I, would, I would guess so. Yeah, um, I, I'll, I'll ask him. He's still he's still around. Oh, um, you're still in touch. Fantastic. I am still in touch. I'm still in touch with several of the people actually who who are, who, are, who helped me. Um, but Frank's a good example actually of of somebody who gave me a really really nice quote. And there were most people were able to do that. Give me some kind of nice quote that I could put into the book. But Frank's quote was the fact that when he was playing, he was filling in for Bob Alfano at a gig, um, and he was playing keyboards. And uh, he says, I came off the stage and at that point I knew that Bruce was going to be a star and I knew that I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, that's a great quote. Yeah. 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 I, I, yeah. I remember seeing that in the book. And, and again, this goes back to what I was saying before about the Columbia executives with the split opinion. The people that actually got it early on in 73, 74, going, this is the real thing. It's the next megastar. In fact, I want, I want to try and... Um, come to a piece in the book which i've got somewhere so dan i'll let you i'll come on to that i'll edit this bit out but i've I found actually i found it now all right um if i can read it out and it's from bruce lundval who was i think it was a vp wasn't he at uh, columbia yeah. and he says uh this is, must have been a memo that gone out to um all the staff at columbia and it says within two weeks you will receive a recap of all the elements that will comprise a major campaign designed with only one purpose in mind, to explode this artist into a major star. The reason that I'm telling you this now is to simply kindle your own creative flames in advance and to tell you in no uncertain terms that we expect your total efforts in realising this goal. And that, I thought, was amazing because, again, just going back to what we are just talking about in terms of you either get it or you don't get it. Bruce Lundvall, who I think was quite new to the company at that stage, wasn't he, Craig? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I was really being quite dictatorial and saying, this is it, we're going for it, all guns blazing, because I don't know what kind of advanced listening they had of Born to Run. Certainly Born to Run, the song was out and circulating in some kind of informal circles at that stage. Yeah. But, but certainly, on no uncertain terms, this guy's going to be the next megastar. And lo and behold, twelve months later, it all happened, didn't it? I think it. I think it all comes back to that that interview that Springsteen had at Brown University, and everything kind of started to gather pace from that point onwards. Um, so, so out of that interview, it was it was conducted by a chap called John Garrett Andrews, and there was another interviewer there called Tom Miller, who went on to be quite a famous travel writer. Um, and they, Springsteen was quite. <sighs> It's quite negative about Columbia Records and the way that he and the band were being treated. And this this all went into the Brown University uh, magazine and it got to a chap called James Segelstein, who was at Brown University. James mm-hmm. Segelstein's father was Erwin Segelstein, who was the highest, I think he was the highest up person in Columbia Records. Um, and by his own admission, knew very little about music. He'd come from television. And James Segelstein went to his father and said, What's happening here? This this guy is a star, you know. We need, and I we got in touch with James Stegelstein, and James was great. He came back and gave us some information. But it seems to have been from there that the ball started rolling. Um, mm. He met with Pell Springsteen and their lawyer Jules Kurz in uh, Mercurio's restaurant in New York City. 
and he kind of at that point said, don't do that again. Uh, it just, it's not helpful. And Mike Appel doubled down and says, well, next week we're meeting Rolling Stone magazine. And Urban Segelstein kind of freaked at that point. And they kind of, at that point, offered Springsteen, you know, you'll, you'll get to make your record. It's a little bit blurry after that. There were still people who were not particularly supportive, but it kind of started the ball rolling at that point. Um, and he got to make his record. Yeah, and I think if you look at what happened in 72 with the auditions with, with Hammond, uh, obviously Hammond took on well, didn't he, in 73. Clive Davis had gone as well. So the two big, biggest advocates or flag waivers he had, had had more or less gone from the scene. So he almost had to rebuild that credibility again with the execs at Columbia, didn't he? It's, a, it's an interesting point because there were there were kind of two factions within Colombia at the, at the time, as far as I can tell. So there was the Hammond and uh, Davis faction who had brought Springsteen on board. And then there was the Koppelman and Cohen faction who had brought Billy Joel on board. Yeah. So when Davis, and ha- when Davis was sacked and Hammond had very little power at Colombia by that point, the most powerful faction was Koppelman and Cohen. And... Even even Mike Appel said, look, if I was in their shoes, I would have done exactly the same thing, and that was to push Billy Joel. And he was pushing Billy Joel at the expense of Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, I know that uh, me and Dan have always talked about how these stories link in. And, you know, we, we, we've had Dick Wingate and Nicky Germain on, as we said, but also Patrick Humphreys has been on recently, as you know, the, uh, the UK journalist who's uh, met Bruce twice, I think it is, and interviewed him, Dan, I think. Uh, he's, yeah, um, yeah. It must be by now. So it, it was a major interview yeah. for, the, for the tracks release, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's lovely to see how all the stories or eras that we talk about overlap. And I, I think that probably leads on to the next question. In terms of when Bruce's auto, autobiography was released, Born to Run, um, was there anything in that autobiography that kind of um, was a revelation for you? Because all the extensive research you'd done – was there anything in the, that book when it came out and go, oh, well, that's different, that's new, or that dispelled that myth or whatever? Was there any surprises in there? Um, there were there were certain things that, that were clarified. Um, the, the trips to the West Coast were quite were quite blurry. And I think in my book, they were kind of skimmed over in the, in the first book that was released in 2013. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think anybody knew anything about I'm playing with the Garage Band. You know, they, they kind of, I think in the new book, I call them the West Coast Castiles. Um, and I don't think anybody knew about the... the the audition with the funk band, so that's that was all new. Um, that, well, that was all new to new me things. as well. Do you, do you want to tell us more about that? Well, I think the 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 first one, which was with the the West Coast Castiles, as I called them, he basically went to an, an audition for a band, and it turned out that actually they were just young boys who, who could barely play their instruments. And um, he, in his, I think in his words, he said he put on a show for them and for the neighbours who all came round to, to listen to him playing guitar because they were just young boys who could barely play guitars, but he could, you know, he was a great guitarist at that point. And the second one, he went for a, a, an audition with a, a West Coast funk band and he didn't get the job. He just, I think he he felt that he would get the job because he's admitted himself, his ego was enormous at that time and, and he didn't get it. So I think, I think that bands, we could, we could probably track down with a little bit of work because they probably advertised the audition in, in local newspapers. Um, but there's still a, put a date. Have you managed to put a date on those two episodes? I, I, I have, but I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head what they were. Um, we're talking they, 67-ish, are we? Um, no, we're t- I think we're talking after the st- Steel Mill came through to, to, to try their luck on the West Coast. I think that right. was his first first trip to California. And then he came two, back. Three years the, later. The, the next two years he came back. I think the first one, he possibly possibly 1970, he played with the, the kids. and 71, he played with the funk band. He was coming back to see his parents. We were in San Mateo okay. at the time. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll make sense. The E Street Cafe podcast. Friendly chats, great stories, interesting guests. Hit the follow button and remember, this is not a dark ride. Um, I picked out something from the, the book which made me laugh. And um, 
it's something that I've never heard before, actually. So I'll, I'll let you tell the story, but I'll prompt you. Hopefully, you, you can remember what I'm talking about. But the uh, the the band shot on the second album outside the shop in Long Branch. Uh, apparently, the photographer was having a little bit of a challenge, wasn't he? Do you remember how they <laughs> how he how he resolved it? I, I found this in an interview, actually. So he, he did say it. So I, I just basically repeated what he said. I didn't interview him as such. But he was he needed the band to smile, and he couldn't get them to smile. So there was a lady walking behind him as he was trying to shoot the band outside a shop. And the band saw him talking to this lady, and uh, he got her to pull her top up, and the band started laughing, and he started taking <laughs> photographs off them. That was the funny thing. I, and it made me laugh. I, and I'm sorry if it offends anybody, but I, I looked at it and I, I then studied the facial expressions of each band member. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think Clarence has probably got the biggest smirk, which does not surprise me. <laughs> yeah. But there's a couple of them who are just like absolutely nonplussed and uh, like just got stony faces on the Monday. But I've never heard that story before, Craig. I no, I, I. Sorry, sorry, Dan. I was just going to say, I think we'll all look at that that picture in a different way now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, unbelievable, unbelievable. But, but this, um, this this is the this is the great thing about the internet. My book could have never been written without the internet in terms of kind of tracking people down. But there's also great interviews that you can track down that were you know obscure interviews like that that particular interview or finding a mm. podcast you know with Mike Appel doing a podcast or Vinnie Lopez doing a podcast and just getting tiny little snippets of information that that link bigger stories together and say ah the right okay that that makes sense now just because of that tiny little snippet of information i think there's some fantastic stories from Vinnie there or or sorry about Vinnie um in the book because he was very very headstrong of course and the biggest beef he always seemed to have was the wages weren't enough or they weren't paid on time and he was yeah. he was like the um the shop floor steward he was the union man wasn't he for the band <laughs> yeah and I, and I think to be fair i think he had a point i mean and, and i've spoken to albie talone about this and albie talone's the, the very opposite you know he, he's very level-headed and and he said it was terrible. We, we just were not getting paid. You know, if, if we were getting paid anything at all, it, was, it wasn't the full amount. But if generally we weren't getting paid. And, you know, th- that's why they were dropping people like Al- Albie Talone and uh, the other roadies and so on, because they, you know, they could make money elsewhere. Yeah. They didn't, yeah. They didn't have that link with the band as such that what Vinnie did. So they, they could just go. Yeah. And you say Mike Appel has contributed to the book, hasn't he? Yeah, Mike's, Mike's contributed. I, I got. Of, of the the group who kind of signed Springsteen initially to Laurel Canyon, um, there was Mike Appel, Jimmy Creticus, and Bob Spitz. And I got Mike Appel and I got Bob Spitz. Now, Mike had been interviewed many, many times before. So it was, while it was crucial, I felt that, that Jimmy Creticus and Bob Spitz were more crucial to the book because I could get more information out of them. Sure. And... I didn't get Jimmy Creticus. I, I don't think anybody's ever interviewed Jimmy Creticus, and there may be legal reasons why that's the case. But Bob Spitz was quite happy to be interviewed as well, and you know, told me a few little bits and pieces that I wasn't aware of, and you know, it was it was a good interview. And I, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think we we mentioned this before we came on, on air. I, I think, but you mentioned a lot about the importance of um, Sam Keith, booking agent. Just looking back at Sam's role now in his early career, just just explain why you thought Sam's role was perhaps underplayed or not recognised fully. Yeah, I, it was. He was definitely one of the ones I wanted to, to Sam McKeith, and I, I just wanted to 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 really track him down and and interview him because I'd I'd read a small interview and I felt that. It, it felt to me from that interview as if Sam was Sam McKeith was the person who kept the band, the, the whole bandwagon going. And it turned out that that was the case. And I heard that from Bob Spitz. He, he, I think it was Bob Spitz that agreed that, you know, he, he booked the band blind. You know, he booked them every available date. He had bookings for them. And he explained in detail how he did it, you know, because he had all these links with these kind of East Coast colleges and so on. And, and he was booking Springsteen in there. And if you look at Springsteen's dates at that time, you know, he was playing six nights in one place, two shows a night. And, and you know, he was playing gig after gig after gig after gig. And he was just playing every available date. And when he wasn't playing a date, he was in the studio. But it was the gigs that allowed him to get into the studio and fund that, that recording. So he I was... Think he I, was read 
Sorry. Wasn't there a funny story as well that I read that um, because they didn't have the money to fund all the recording studio uh, sessions, they used to sneak into the studios at night, didn't they, as well? So effectively it was unaccounted time. So it wasn't billed for. Yeah, I, I can't remember where I got that, but I, I possibly was a Mike Appel interview somewhere, or there's a yeah. there's a there's a book about nine one four studios. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh well, yeah. I would call it being entrepreneurial. I reckon, Dan, don't you? And that's just that. that. That reminds me. I think a similar um, uh, sort of uh, escapade happened with um, when. Uh, <clears throat> Sorry, when um, when Stevie was first recording uh, with the Jukes, I think they uh, uh, sneaked in and, and did some nighttime work to um, uh, either save money or pay no money at all. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure yeah. it was going on all over. Oh, yes, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, I must read out, um, Dan's very kindly put some notes together prior, prior to our chat with you, and it's an excerpt from a, a review of your book, uh, from Goodreads, Goodreads Review, and it says, there have been plenty of books written about Bruce Springsteen, but this is the first to concentrate solely on his early years, as we've mentioned. The author, that's who we're talking to now, uh, believes that to fully understand Springsteen's recorded work, it is necessary to understand the formative years that shaped him, and it examines, and it bullet points about six or seven things. And the last one it bullet points, Craig, is how the musicians changed the rules to all-night Monopoly sessions. So we know that Monopoly was um, part of the Do- Dr. Zoom days, but what do you know about uh, the, the rules and the Monopoly sessions? I, I, I honestly can't remember. Uh, I know Springsteen was called the Baron. Um, they all right. had nicknames, and Springsteen was the Baron. Um, and I think it was it was round about that time that they they got the idea to dress up for the Doctor Zoom shows. Um, yeah. And you, I, there was a, some rule about wiping out and you know another player's hotels if you know if there was a hurricane on the boardwalk or something like that. <laughs> I, I, it, it vaguely, vaguely rings a bell. Oh, amazing, amazing. But as I say, the, the, the photographs that you've got on there, there's some photos from the Dr. Zoom days, isn't there? Because there's yeah. one shot on stage with, or well, it looks like about eight or nine backing singers there as well. But I say the, the amount of research that you've done into the book is, is unbelievable because, uh, and Dan's now looking at the original version from 2013, I think. Is that the original version you got there, Dan? Is the original one, uh, yes. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And shared the, the update with us. Yeah. But, um, sorry, go. So I was just going to say that I interviewed the the the, the ladies who were in that photograph. The Zoom, we were called we were known as the Zoom Chorus. I interviewed right. several of them, and there was some really good stuff from Jeannie Fisher. We all have heard of who used to support Springsteen occasionally, um, and Robin Nash. And there was there was something really interesting that she came out with. And this this quite often happened actually when I interviewed somebody about a subject, and I can, I can give you a couple of examples of this that actually are really good examples. Um, they, you would interview them about a specific subject. So Robin Nash, I wanted to interview about Dr. Zoom shows. And she told me that a couple of years later when Springsteen was signed, she went round to his apartment one night and read line by line through one of the contracts. I think it was one of the Laurel Canyon contracts. Right. So they read through it line by line. Now, to me, that that's an important point because, um, you know, there's always this story that, that kind of does the rounds about Springsteen signing contracts on, on hoods of cars and unlit car parks. You know, they, they were going through this contract line for line. So as naive as he was in terms of contracts, he still understood the importance of contracts, which kind of lays waste to that argument that he did not care. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I'm pretty sure he would have paid some attention yeah I, that, that was one of the questions we had about you know is there any kind of misconceptions or myths that have been dispelled from your interviews yeah. with people that you've talked to and that seems to be one of them by the sounds of it and i'm sure Absolutely. there are plenty others as well yeah 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 I mean- these people were just there at the get-go weren't they these were the ones that you know when you grow up and start playing and hanging around with somebody who becomes a mega uh, superstar later on you remember the small detail a lot more I think uh, that details tends to get watered down or misconstrued over time with some people. Yeah, there was a, there was another great story, and the, the reason I want I want to tell you this one is that this was this was the kind of big interview for the second book. If, if I had a, a reason for writing the first book being Flash Craig, the reason for writing the second book 
was partly Springsteen's autobiography, but also tracking mm. down a chap called Phil, Phil Jumbalvo. I hope, right. I'm saying his, I hope I'm saying his name correctly. But uh-huh. Phil was the engineer on the Hammond demos. Now, nice. I tried to track down Phil in, 19, in 2013, 2012. Couldn't track him down. And based on Springsteen's information about the Hammond demos, I thought he was probably dead. Um, because Springsteen had said that, you know, it was the end of an era, the 1950s engineers with the suit, the, the shirts and ties. But actually, it wasn't. Phil, Phil Jambalvo was only slightly older than Springsteen. So I was able to get the whole information about the the the, the session. What was Springsteen wearing? What was Phil wearing? How was the, what was the microphone set up? All that kind of information. What was Hammond asking? What were the questions that Hammond asked? But again, one of these kind of small snippets that, that kind of steps away from what I expected to get from him was the fact that on the first day of the greetings sessions, Phil Jambalvo turns up at 914 Studios expecting to be the engineer on the greeting sessions. And the whole day was taken over with an argument between Appel and Columbia, because Appel wanted Louis Le Havre to be the engineer, mm. and Columbia required a union engineer. Mm. So it was agreed that Phil Jambalvo and possibly other engineers as well would just turn up at the sessions and read a newspaper while Louis Le Havre was doing the sessions. <laughs> Yeah, unbelievable. But, you know, again, it's stories like that which make the book so special because, um, you know, we think we go back a lot when we spoke to Nicky, uh, Nicky Jermaine in 74 and Dick in 73, but you go back, you know, into the the pre-formative years, if I can call it that, you know, with the Rogues, with the Castiles, with Dr. Zoom, Steel Mill, and it's documented so brilliantly as well, if I may say so. Um so, yeah, I, I, again, this is a, a pre-plug plug. Go out and buy the book. You know, Springsteen, Satan, the City, 1949 to 1974 is an amazing read. And hopefully the small dip into it with Craig today has given you a, a flavour for what the amount of detail that we have in that book or, or you will read in the book. It, it's amazing. It's not spongy enough, spongy enough, spongy enough. Um, so, obvious question, were you at the Edinburgh concert in May? Uh, I was, yeah. yeah, I, I, yeah. It, it was an amazing concert. I didn't expect it to be because Edinburgh people are quite reserved. Glasgow people are, are more outgoing. <laughs> um, it's a bit of a generalisation, but it's it true. But it was a great concert. And I was at two of the Dublin concerts as well. And I, I think... I think it was as good as the Dublin concerts. Okay. So you went to Dublin as well? I went to nights two and three in Dublin, yeah. Okay. It's hard to compare concert with concert. I, I think we, we've had this discussion before as well, haven't we, Dan, about oh, yeah. sometimes it's not about favourite concerts, it's about moments within concerts. Yeah, you know, this, um, was, this was interesting for me because I took my youngest son to it and it was his, his first Springsteen concert. So you're kind of watching Springsteen on stage, but you're also watching your son to see how he's reacting to it. So that was interesting. That makes it special. How, how, how old is he? He is 20. Right, okay. okay. Yeah, so that's a great age, in it, to get in? Absolutely. And again, again, we've just been talking to uh, Warren Zanes, um, and he was saying about to understand Springsteen, sometimes you've got to look at the, the people in the audience and look at the, the looks on the faces. And I think somewhere in the book I remember reading that as well, but um, there was some mention to that in some different context as well. But um, in terms of now, um, this could be a... Street Shuffle question, I guess, but because you've gone so heavily into Bruce's earlier work, are you saying that you prefer his earlier work in terms of the albums, his recorded material, or do you prefer the later stuff? What's your kind of favourite era? Favourite era? I, I've, I've always said, and I've made the argument, that the, the three-album run from Wild and Innocent through Born to Run to Darkness is the greatest three-album run by any artist ever. And I'm sure people will disagree with me, and I'm sure Mike Saunders possibly could uh, come up with a different three. Um, I that that's my favourite era. Th- those three albums. Um, I think Darkness is just off the scale. It's just an incredible album. Many would agree. Yeah, yeah I, I would find it hard to disagree with those three as well. To be honest with you, I think River was certainly my first album I bought because I was seventy eight, seventy nine. So. I was just after darkness, but the river for me was the one that really switched me on. But retrospectively, looking back now, I've fallen in love with darkness on the edge of town so much 
since the release date because it was played to me right back in 78 and I didn't quite get it. Whereas now I would say, yeah, it's definitely in my top two or three. Yeah, but uh, and it's your favourite album, I think, Dan. Is it? Darkness? Yep. If I if I have to choose a Desert Island album, it's got to be Darkness. Uh, and, yeah. if, and if I have to choose a track, it has to be Racing in the Street, and that hasn't changed in you know about forty years. And we're still hoping we're going to get that in the upcoming <laughs> gigs, aren't we? <laughs> Here's hoping. <laughs> well, it has it has been on one. It was was it not on one of the set lists uh, in I May? It was soundtracked at, at Dublin. Do you remember um, hearing that at all, Craig? I don't. No, I don't remember that. I know that Dublin Dublin Three had a, a, a really different set list, but it, it wasn't played. Right. You know, it, it kind of reverted to the to the usual set list. But he had three or four songs in there that that you know, if he had brought them out, it would have been wholly different from the the rest of the shows. Was yeah. Jungle? I think Jungle might have been on one of the nights yeah. down as well. Racing on the street, uh, racing in the street. I think was down as well. But yeah, you're right. This goes back to I remember what, one of my favourite concerts recently on the last. 10 years or so was the Leeds gig in 2013 that we keep talking about. And rumour has it, and I've still not had this confirmed unless Dan or yourself can correct it, but rumour has it that he potentially was going to play the Wild and the Innocent uh, album in its entirety that night. But um, I think that was just a whisper. I don't know if you... Have you, do, have you heard that rumour, Dan? Leeds 2013, the... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the arena show. Uh, yeah, I saw... Um, uh, thanks to uh, dear departed friend Holly, who comes up in almost every every episode that we do. <laughs> yeah, she does. Um, she? she she showed me on her phone uh, a photo of the set list, and my jaw dropped because it was there was at least there was a huge chunk. I only saw it for a second. She just you know, just showed it to me very briefly. Uh, said, "I you haven't seen this, right?" And because she was working with the band at the time, and yes. um, uh, but yeah, there was a huge chunk of the second album on there. Um, yes. There were one or two other things uh, which just at the time I thought, what, what, hang on, and I wanted to see more, and then she was gone, was just just sort of teasing me with that. But uh, I mean, it, it ended up being a pretty special set list anyway. Well, it, it was, yeah. It, it would have been absolutely, you know, even more jaw dropping if if that original yeah. set list had yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we'll never know. We'll never know. Uh, Craig, are you up for playing the E Street Shuffle? I would love to. Oh, let's go for it. Okay, let's just okay. shuffle the cards. Let's play the E Street Shuffle. Okay, question number one. Oh, by the way, how's the porridge? Oh, it's lovely. Is yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It got to you in one piece. Sloppy Sue was uh, kept away from it, so um, she might have lovingly made it, Sloppy Sue. But she—it's uh, <laughs> Russell Best Street, isn't it? Porridge. Um, she might have lovingly made it, but she certainly didn't bring it through. We only entrust that to Rosie. Um, <laughs> Okay, question number one, E Street Shuffle. Um, what would be your Desert Island disc? We just talked about that, haven't we? Desert Island disc. Is this an album or a, or a single? Yeah. And I'll, well, you get more value from an album, wouldn't you? And we'd be able well to yeah. We'd be an old greedy person who chose a box set. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think I would have to go with tracks just simply because it's got four sides in it. Um, oh, it is. And it, yeah. and it covers all cover, covers all eras. You certainly don't want the 18 tracks. You want the full tracks, don't you? No, I want the full tracks, yeah. You but I would, four, like the, I, would, I would like the promise on there as well. I, you know, I, I think the promise would be a nice little bonus. Yeah, lovely. I'm sure we could have managed that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, second question. Um, if you could be a member of the E Street Band for one night, who would it be? Ooh, um, possibly Jake. I think he, he gets most time up front, and uh, other than Bruce. So yeah, I think Jake. And that's I can tell. I got got to get the Jungle Land solo in though. So yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I can tell you know shrinking Violet Craig. So Jake would you, you certainly <laughs> don't want to be one of the backing singers, do you? <laughs> I mean, that's a compliment. But have you, have you had some musical? Do you play any instruments? Have you got a musical background? I I I play guitar badly, and mm-hmm. I I I used to sing in various bands. And I, my voice is actually okay. My voice is good, yeah. but um, my my guitar playing let me down, unfortunately. So Did it? Um, yeah. So you stopped. So I stopped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just karaoke. Um, <laughs> okay, a couple more questions for you, Craig. Uh, what was the first concert you ever went to? Oh, uh, ooh. And, and date as well, if you can remember. 
it might have, it was either, I can't, I can't remember, it was either Steve Errol, I went to see Steve Errol last night in the Queen's Hall, mm-hmm. and I first went to see him on 26th of March 1987 in the Queen's Hall in Edinburgh, and there was about 20 okay. people there. So it might have been that, or it could have been, if the Bob Dylan Temple and Flames tour came before that, it might be the Bob, with Tom Petty, Roger McGuinn and Bob Dylan, I can't remember which came first. Now, Wikipedia Saunders will be able to tell you the dates of both of those concerts, I'm sure. So he'll be able to um, tell us afterwards which came first out the two. I, I've got a feeling it was a Steve Earle one. Yeah, yeah. Wikipedia uh, was at uh, the Steve Earle concert, by the way. Oh, really? In Edinburgh? Well, yeah. He, he, no, he was at the was one in, in Newcastle. He, in the oh, oh, Newcastle. Sorry, yes, he was at yeah. Newcastle gig, wasn't he? Same, same yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, last, last, um, last question for you. Uh, if you could cook dinner for two people, two dinner guests... Um, who would they be? Springsteen. Yeah, I think that's that's a given. And yeah. I, I, Woody Guthrie. Oh, I think that, I think that would be interesting. I think that would. Yeah, I just listened to the 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 wire the wire recording, and he's okay. an interesting he's an interesting chap. And I love uh, I love Bound for Glory. So yeah, and Joe Klein's biography. So. Yeah, just, just, just imagine the conversation they could have between them as well. Exactly, uh, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can imagine the after dinner song as well, couldn't you? Oh, I, yeah, think Steve, I think Steve. <laughs> I think Steve Errol would be inter- entertaining though. So, uh, but yeah, I think I think Woody Guthrie and Springsteen. Okay. So, in terms of um, the book itself, it's been updated. Um, I presume there's copies available. So, it, it's is it a limited run? Is it um, widely available? Uh, no, it's basically, so the original book was published by a publisher um, and getting a publisher nowadays is just phenomenally difficult. So this is self-published and it's available on Kindle. So you can get it through yeah. Amazon as uh, now uh, we can, you can get it. Um, okay. And I'm hoping to get a print, print on demand version up in the next few days. So hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, there'll be a print on demand version available. Okay, and that will be hardback, paperback? Paperback. Paperback, okay. So um, if people want to get in touch with you directly, Craig, is that possible? Um, I don't have a website or anything like that, but I'm I'm findable on the internet. You know, people, you know, you can track me down. It's it's not too difficult. Find you on Facebook. Yeah, well, if if you can find all these people from 50, 60 years ago, I'm sure we can find (laughs) Craig Stathams, S-T-A-T-H-A-M, author of Saint in the City. It's a brilliant book, guys. Go out there and read it. Um, Hopefully today's podcast has given you a little flavor of the amount of work, copious amounts of work, years and years of work that's gone into this research-wise. And it's very enjoyable. Lots of anecdotes and stories. A uh, lot of the interesting history as well behind, um, you know, just growing up as well, just growing up and how we developed the story of Bruce picking up the guitar for the first time, his first band. So do pick it up. Um, Springsteen State in the City, 1949 to 1974, uh, fully recommended by Dan and myself. And Craig, uh, it's been an absolute joy talking to you today. Thank you very much. And, no, thank uh, you. And we're glad that we could share the uh the sunny weather with you you know here we are a little bit further south than you in england and you're up north and i can't see any snow through your window so that's great no it's lovely <laughs> thanks very much craig and we'll, no, thank we'll talk you. To you soon no doubt cheers thank you for listening and don't forget to hit that follow button this podcast was brought to you by geezers in glasses productions